Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks. I'm one of the pastors at Covenant Hope Church. I'm glad you've joined us for our summer series through the Psalms. We're going through book four of the Psalms. We've made our way from Psalm 90 and we're up to now Psalm 95. In 1979, the singer-songwriter Bob Dylan outlined an important philosophical point in a song which would later go on to win a Grammy Award for Best Rock Performance of the Year. His point was this in the words of the song, You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Sometimes popular songs tell the truth. Bob Dylan knew something that many people don't like to admit, that we were born to serve someone. Who are you serving in your life? Who are you serving? Well, let's look at Psalm 95 this afternoon. It's a psalm about the great God, our great King in heaven, who deserves all of our service. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 95. And let's begin to tune our ears to God's voice this afternoon. Psalm 95, follow along with me. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation." and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The main theme that we'll describe Psalm 95 with this afternoon is this. Come worship the Lord our King and hear His warning. Come worship the Lord our King and hear His warning. And there's going to be just two points that we see as an outline for this psalm. Worship and warning. Worship we see in verses 1 through 7, line C, 7C, and then warning we see beginning at 7D through the last verse 11. Worship and warning. 
Last week we read in Psalm 94 about the Lord who is king, who will judge the wicked, who oppress his people. And this week in Psalm 95, we're called to join with the psalmist in corporate worship of the Lord who is king, to sing joyfully to him, to bow and kneel before him, and finally to listen carefully to him, avoiding the hard-hearted sins of our spiritual ancestors, the Israelites. Now, the original psalm in Hebrew doesn't have a title, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament tells us that it's a song of King David. And the author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament also attributes it to David as well. And we could easily see how that makes sense, that because David was a musician and the psalmist in our psalm calls us to sing, And David was also a shepherd, we know, before he became king. And God is described as being a shepherd in this psalm. The first seven verses are an invitation to join in corporate worship. That's the first point that our text makes this afternoon, worship. Now, it is about worship in these first seven verses, but there are two separate invitations to worship in two different ways and for two different reasons. The first invitation is there in verses one and two. It's an invitation to join the psalmist in corporate worship through singing songs together. Four times he urges us saying, let us, let us, let us. And he says, let us sing. Twice, he says, let us make a joyful noise. And the songs that he urges us to sing are to be characterized by thanksgiving to the Lord and praise to the Lord. Worship is how every human has been designed by God to respond to God. The scriptures describe worship as responding to God with every single aspect of our lives. Actually, we respond to God worshiping Him with our work, in our play, with our thinking, and in the things that we say, even in our eating, and even in our sleeping as well. We worship God with our whole lives, every aspect of our lives. And so you might have noticed that when a pastor or a service leader is leading from the front or teaching at Covenant Hope Church, we refer to our singing not simply as worship. It is worship, but we call it worship through singing because every other aspect of our service is worship for the Lord as well. Worship through hearing God's word read, worship through hearing God's word preached, worship through the prayers that we pray together. You see, Worship through singing is simply a way to remember that we worship God with our whole lives, and singing is just one part of that. But it's an important part, a mandatory part, that we sing to the Lord. We see the command here, of course. We're called to sing together to the Lord. This isn't just a command for people who think they have a good voice or who are able to hit the notes like someone who's been trained as a singer. Singing singing to God together is the calling of every Christian, every Christian. I know that some people come together at a church service and simply read the words and 
Maybe they're listening to others sing, but they don't open their mouths. Maybe, maybe that describes you. Maybe you feel embarrassed about your singing ability. Perhaps you're not musically gifted. Not everyone is, but that doesn't matter. The Lord deserves to hear you make a joyful noise with your voice. Your singing might be closer to something that you'd call noise, but that doesn't matter. I'm reminded that singing with others, especially when we're not very good at singing, requires a certain kind of self-forgetfulness, not paying attention to ourselves. Don't think about what others are thinking of your voice when you sing. When you gather with the local church, think about what the Lord has done for you. Think about the characteristics of the Lord, which are true right then and there. He deserves thanksgiving in your song. Think of the salvation that has been gifted to you due to nothing inside of you, but solely to what He's done for you out of His grace and mercy. The Lord deserves joyful praise from you in singing. One of the ways that those of you who are parents can raise your children to be singers to the Lord is for you to lead your family in singing in your home, in fact. Children who learn to sing to the Lord at home step right into corporate worship in the local church like it's second nature. And I want to especially encourage you fathers to lead your children and your wife in singing to the Lord. Children who learn to sing in the home oftentimes become lifelong worshipers of God through the songs of praise and thanksgiving that they learned when they were growing up. I remember songs that I taught my children, in fact. Lastly, are you inviting people to join you in corporate worship? That's what the psalmist is doing, and we should do that too. If you notice people on the fringes of our church membership who haven't been around for a while, give them a call. See how they're doing. Maybe they're struggling. Maybe they need encouragement to come and join together again in corporate worship. Or maybe you know someone who claims to be a Christian but never attends a church service regularly to worship in song with others or listen to God's Word preached. Encourage them to come together with the local church and sing the praises of God together with God's people. Now, this might be harder, of course, as the pandemic restrictions continue, but it's something to at least tuck away in your mind for when we begin gathering to sing together again. The psalmist continues in verses three through five to give a reason for calling others to join in joyful worship through song together. It is because the Lord is a king who created everything. He deserves joyful praise and thanks simply for his creation. In verse three, he's declared to be a great God and a great king above all gods. Verse 4 and 5 then point us to some of the most awe-inspiring aspects of His creation like the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains, the seas and the dry land, all of which of course is described as being created by God in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. You see, the Lord made everything that we can see. He carefully crafted it. He's sustaining it. And that's hinted at when the psalmist reminds us that these awesome and immense features of our earth are in the Lord's hands. 
Twice it mentions his hands. Think about what can fit into your hand. Not much. And when we want to talk about a small amount, sometimes we might say to another, oh, it's just a handful. (laughs) Of course, the Lord doesn't literally have hands. He's spirit. But we're meant to understand from the psalmist's language that if we look around and see all of creation and how great and awesome it is, we're to know that it points to the God who is a king who's far more awesome and far greater. He's far more immense than creation. He made it all, and he deserves for us to lift our voices in songs of praise to him for it. We're invited into corporate worship of our Lord who's king and creator. And then in verses 6 and 7, we're invited to corporate worship of our king who redeemed us and is our shepherd. In verse 6, the psalmist is urging us to join together in worship by bowing down and kneeling before the Lord. The psalmist tells us he is our maker. Look there with me at verse 6 again. It's a very famous verse that many of you perhaps even know by heart. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Bowing down and kneeling paint this vivid picture of a people who are submitting themselves to the Lord. They're acknowledging his rule and authority in their lives. They're asking him, how can we serve underneath you, Lord? I wonder if you've ever knelt in prayer. Have you ever bowed your head to the floor as you lifted up your requests and your praise to God? I don't mean to imply that you can't pray without kneeling or bowing. In fact, the scriptures tell us throughout all their pages that there's many different postures for praying. There's sitting, there's standing, there's laying down. But there's something about kneeling before someone that communicates with your posture, I'm at your service. Uh, I'm humbled in your presence. You are great, and I'm willingly placing myself under your leadership. That's what kneeling and bowing say. In fact, when the Apostle Paul went to a particular city that's described in the book of Acts, When he preached the gospel and performed a miracle, many of the people of the city thought that Paul was a god, and so they came and bowed down. They kneeled to him. What did Paul do? He said, no, stand up. I'm just a man. God is the one who deserves to be bowed down to and knelt before. And if you're like me, you probably haven't had many opportunities to kneel or bow But so many people throughout Scripture respond to the Lord or even to His messengers, the angels, by kneeling or bowing down. Their instinctive response to God and His special messengers is to submit, submit themselves to them. Perhaps you want to incorporate kneeling into your own personal quiet times when you pray. You might find that it helps you communicate with your whole body your dependence and you're waiting on the Lord. You could even do that when we pray, once we begin to gather for worship together at the deck building after the pandemic restrictions lift. You are welcome when we perhaps begin to pray the pastoral prayer, for example, to step aside from your chair and kneel. Kneel before the Lord if that helps you submit yourself to God in your heart and mind. 
But the reason for bowing and kneeling in worship in verse 6 is a little bit different than what's given for corporate worship that's called for in verses 1 and 2. Up in verse 3, we're invited to worship because the Lord's a great God, a great King. And here in verse 7, we're invited to worship because He's our God. He's our Maker, He says in verse 6. And in verse 7, He continues, And we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. The reason for worshiping here is that God is the King who's claimed us for His own. We are His people. And when it speaks about His pasture and being the sheep of His hand, it's painting this picture of a God who's a king who's shepherding us. You know, it's helpful to know that this idea of the king as a shepherd wasn't actually unique to ancient Israel. In fact, many documents from other nations in the ancient Near East, they speak about their king as a shepherd, the Babylonians and the Sumerians and other pagan nations as well. God often referred to Israel as his specially chosen people. And God often referred to himself in scripture as Israel's shepherd. In Genesis 48, 15, Jacob calls God his shepherd. He says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. Then in Ezekiel 34, for example, he brings charges against the leaders of Israel, calling them shepherds that don't take care of the sheep, but rather eat the sheep. And he says of himself, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. The Lord is a shepherd for his people. He physically redeemed the people of Israel by judging Egypt and miraculously bringing them through the Red Sea. And he's fully redeemed us through the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Is that how you think about the Lord as a shepherd? Do you think of him as a compassionate one watching over us in his pasture, so to speak? watching out for you, protecting you, looking to shield you from the dangers that Satan might be putting in your way? Do you think of him as a shepherd who values and treasures you as his sheep? You know, it's so much more true of the Lord, our shepherd. Each one of you is of great value and great worth to the Lord. Every Christian, everyone who has repented and put their trust and faith in Christ is one of his sheep. One of the ones that he, he personally guards with his mighty hand, the same hand that fashioned the mountains and the seas. Ancient pagan creation myths would describe the gods as creating humans so that humans could take care of the gods, that they would go and find food for them and feed the gods. But the Bible describes the Lord as the one true God who created us and feeds us and protects us rather than the reverse. The strong, loving hand of God described here in Psalm 95 is protecting and providing for you, brothers and sisters. The Lord loves you and he paid a great price for you and Christ went to the cross. Don't ever doubt his love and care for you, no matter what you're going through. 
But just as we shouldn't doubt his care and watchfulness of us, we should also recognize that submitting ourselves to his rule and authority is the only appropriate response of worship to the Lord who is our shepherd king. Brothers and sisters, if you had to describe your posture toward God, represented by all the choices you're making with your time and with your money, your goals, and in all the ways that you live, would you describe your life as a life of bowing before the Lord or kneeling before God? Does God have the first and final say in your life? Is He the one you're serving? It's one thing to physically bow and kneel in corporate worship service, but that should be mirrored in our attitudes towards His kingly rule over us seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year, for the rest of our lives. Knowing that we're sheep of His hand and the people of His pasture, it sets us up well to hear what the psalmist has to say to us in the rest of the psalm as well. And there we see a warning. That's the second point this afternoon, a warning. First, he's called us to worship the king, and now we hear a warning from the king. And that warning begins in the last line of verse 7. Look there with me. I'm going to read the end of verse 7 all the way to the end one more time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that's the end of the psalm. One thing that can go easily unnoticed when you read this psalm is that up to verse 8, the psalmist is the one speaking to us. He's the one inviting us to join him and to join together in corporate worship of God our King. But after that, he says, today if you hear his voice, and there he's speaking about God's voice, of course, but then from there onward to the end of the psalm, it becomes the Lord himself who's speaking. And so in verse 9, it says, When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, they had seen my work. He says, I loathe that generation, and they have not known my ways. And in the last verse, the Lord's voice is ominous and threatening. And he says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. How should we best understand these verses that are a bit jarring at the end of the psalm. I think the first thing to understand is what happened at that place called Meribah and Massa in the wilderness. In our psalm, the Lord is speaking through the psalmist and reminding us of what's described first in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. It's in that passage that the Israelites who had just been miraculously rescued through the plagues that God had put on the Egyptians, and then through one of the most spectacular miracles recorded in the whole Bible, had been rescued by God parting the Red Sea and bringing the Israelites through to the other side and then drowning the Egyptian armies when the waters came back over them. 
Then God provided water for them in the desert and miraculous bread for them to eat, the manna from heaven it was called. But just three days, just three days after the parting of the Red Sea, the people grumbled and quarreled with Moses and with God, demanding water, questioning whether God was with them or not. And what they were doing was rebelling against the Lord. They were sinfully testing him, as it says in verse 9 of our psalm. Meribah means quarreling, and Masa means testing. And so they called that place Meribah and Masa. Still God put up with them, and after they had received the laws, God had covenanted with them at Mount Sinai. He led them to the edge of the promised land, but they refused to go in. They refused to believe God's promises and trust Him. That was rebellion. And so the Lord declared that because of their hard, unbelieving hearts, they would not be allowed to go in. That's what He said to them in Numbers chapter 14. And so that generation wandered for almost 40 years in the desert. Most of them died in the desert there. And then sadly, in Numbers 20, when God had led some of them up to the edge of the promised land, almost 40 years after that original rebellion, they did the same thing again. They rebelled and grumbled against Moses and the Lord because they were thirsty. And that place was also called Meribah, or quarreling. The Israelites had a terrible pattern of sinning against God throughout their lifetimes, and their rebellious attitude towards the Lord came from their hard hearts. And the result was that God was disgusted with them, or as it says in the psalm, He loathed them, and He swore in His righteous anger that they would not enter the promised land, which He refers to in our psalm as my rest. You see, the promised land was going to be a place of safety, an abundant provision for Israel, it was going to be a place of rest. But instead, they rebelled and refused what God was offering. Now, the other passage that sheds much light on the final four verses of this psalm is Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And in the verses that stretch between 3 and 4 of Hebrews, 29 verses there, in those 29 verses, are this psalm is referred to 19 times. Specifically, these last four verses are referred to 19 times, and they're directly quoted five times. The author of Hebrews is warning his readers to be careful to listen and obey God's voice, or else they risk repeating the same sin of unbelief and rebellion that the Israelites in the desert had committed. Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The Lord gave the Israelites covenant promises, and then He called them in obedience to follow but they had hard hearts. They didn't believe God's promises. They didn't trust Him. 
And so the author of Hebrews goes on in chapter 4, the first three verses to say, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. God's words spoken through the psalm of the psalmist are warning us that we are in the very same danger as those disbelieving Israelites. They had the covenant promises of God, but we have the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ and the gospel. The good news preached to them was the promise of entering the promised land. The good news that's come to us is that the Messiah has come in Jesus Christ, and if we repent and believe in Him, we will be saved. We will become heirs of Christ's righteousness and eternal life. The rest that we will get to enter is not a piece of land in present-day Israel, but the new heavens and the new earth ruled over by our King Jesus. It is salvation, it's redemption, and eventual glorification. That's the rest that's offered to us in the gospel. Our gospel is fuller and more complete than what they had. Our gospel is better than theirs. And though we all have sinful, unbelieving, and hard hearts, which have led us all to rebel against our holy and loving shepherd, the Lord, God has lavished on us through his free grace and mercy, Christ's paying of the penalty for our rebellion. He did that on the cross. His work is finished, his blood has been spilled, his resurrection has been accomplished, and now all that's left is for us to understand our need for his saving work, to repent of our sins, and to turn and follow him in faith and obedience. The words of this psalm weren't just for David's day when he wrote it, and they weren't just for the Hebrews in their day, as recorded in the New Testament. God is speaking to us now, warning us, brothers and sisters. I say to you today, if you hear his voice, August 7th, 2020, Today, if you hear his voice, don't disregard the warnings of God's word as if they were just for non-believers. One of the ways that God works to strengthen his own people to persevere in faith is by warning us. Do you cringe at the threatening warnings of scripture? Do you want to skip over them? In fact, liberal scholars of the last 200 years have sometimes tried to change this psalm and cut out the last four verses because they don't like the threatenings that are there. Oh, isn't it ironic that by leaving off those verses, they miss the exhortation to listen to God? Do you skip over the warnings of Scripture because you've prayed the prayer and you think to yourself, once saved, always saved? Parents protect their children when they warn them not to play in the street, and children avoid disaster when they heed the warnings. And in the same way, God 
preserves us in faith when he warns us of the dangers of unbelieving hearts. If you're a Christian, you've witnessed great miracles done by the Lord in your life and the lives of those around you, miracles of salvation and transformation, perhaps miracles of healing or rescue. But if you don't continue in faith and unbelief, if you don't persevere in trust in God's promises and obedience to his word, you will not enter. Our faith will be proved to have been a dead faith in the words of James. Are you willing to, brothers and sisters, warn in love a fellow believer? The author of Hebrews in chapter four says, let us exhort one another. He's saying, take the warnings that God gives us in scripture and warn one another with them in order to protect one another and help one another persevere. Are you, are you too afraid of what other believers might think of you if you see them straying and you think maybe they need a warning? Oh, brothers and sisters, that's part of what we need in our church community, in our culture of discipleship. We need to be willing in love and in gentleness to go to one another and warn one another if we see valid reasons for that. That's a loving act. May we be so bold to do that with one another. Our statement of faith outlines the importance of persevering in faith until the day we die or until Jesus comes back. It says, we believe that genuine believers are only those who endure to the end. Their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from those who falsely profess faith in Christ. You know, it's quite possible for someone to claim faith in Christ but not actually have it. Just like it was possible for the Israelites of Moses' day to say, I'm an Israelite, when they weren't Israelites in the sense of having soft and humble and believing hearts. Don't fool yourselves about people who claim faith but bear no evidence of true faith. We don't do them any favors when we affirm a false profession. Do they listen to the Lord's voice and seek to obey? Are they joining themselves together with the local church? Are they coming together regularly to listen to God's word and preaching? Are their lives marked by joyful worship of God and a life of humble bowing to his will? Beware of hardness of heart. You see, we're in a similar position that the Israelites found themselves in when they were in the wilderness. They had been saved from slavery in Egypt, but needed to persevere in faith in order to eventually enter the promised land of Canaan. And those of us who have trusted in Christ and believe the good news have been saved from the condemnation of our sins, but we must persevere in this life of testing and trials and tribulations before we enter the rest of heaven. We're on a journey through the wilderness of this life, following Jesus, our shepherd, just like they were 3,500 years ago. And to safely enter, we must continue to listen to his voice with soft, believing hearts. 
We can't give in to the deceitfulness of sin that no longer rules us, but still lives in us. One of the most important ways that we hear His voice is in the preaching of gospel-centered sermons in the context of the local church. Personal Bible reading or small group discussions, one-on-one reading together, of course, those are all wonderful practices to engage in. So many of you are doing these things. But hearing the preached Word of God in the context of the local church is a non-negotiable. I think the Scriptures mandate it. Christopher Ashen His book, Listen Up, gives seven ingredients for healthy sermon listening. I'm going to tell you four of them. First, he says, expect God to speak when you come to hear the preaching of God's Word. Expect Him to speak. A sermon doesn't have to be the best, most powerful sermon that you've ever heard to be a faithful sermon. If a sermon is simply faithful to the text that it's based on, you can know that God is speaking. Are you expecting Him? to speak when the sermon begins. Number two, admit that God knows better than you. This means we listen with humble, soft hearts. Far too often, we're listening to sermons that affirm who we are and how we're living rather than listening to how God might want to correct or transform us, how God might want to convict us of sin, sin that would harm us. Number three, Hear the sermon in the gathering of the local church. Of course, we're not physically gathered now during the pandemic restrictions, and that is a bitter pill for us to swallow. But listening to a sermon online is second best compared to hearing a sermon when we're physically gathered together. Even listening to sermons of famous, accomplished preachers is second best to listening in person with others whom you've covenanted together with to follow Christ, being preached by a pastor who knows you. And fourth, do what the Bible says. James tells us in his New Testament letter, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I encourage you, try to walk away from every sermon preached with at least one practical step that you're going to act on. Today, we hear the voice of the Lord in Scripture and specifically through what Christ has had to say to us. As with the other Psalms that we've studied, this Psalm points us to Christ the Messiah, sent from God. It's about Christ And those last four verses are the voice of Christ calling out to us. Jesus, you see, is the rock of salvation for us, the one who died and rose again for our redemption. And when we sing, we sing joyful praises to Jesus. Jesus is the great Davidic king who's been crowned with glory and honor by God the Father. He sits at the right hand of God, having been given all power and authority because he was obedient to go to the cross. Jesus is the God-man through whom all creation was made. John 1, verse 3, all things were made through Him. Jesus is the one that we bow and kneel before and worship. And God has exalted Him so that we can bow to Him. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus is the good shepherd who's laid down his life for us, his people. 
Jesus is the voice we must hear and obey. And so when he was on the mountain of transfiguration, the father said of Jesus to the disciples, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Jesus was the one whom the Israelites rebelled against in the desert, and the Pharisees of his day had the same hard hearts. And when they tried to trap him, Jesus replied, why do you put me to the test? Jesus is the king who will judge all mankind on that dreadful day. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And Jesus is the one holding out salvation and the rest that we so desperately need and want. Rest from our fruitless works righteousness. Rest from our slavery to sin. Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, we're called to worship the King, the King Jesus, and we're called to heed the warnings of King Jesus. This is the path that we trod in this life together. Let's pray to Him. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You are a God who has spoken to us. You are our Creator, the one who has made everything that we see, Lord. And all we need to do to have a reason to praise you, Lord, is to wake in the morning and look out of the window. Creation urges us to praise you with joyful praise. Lord, you are the one who's called us to yourself and redeemed us and made us to be your people. Lord, we praise you that you are our shepherd. We bow before you. We kneel before you, Lord. And Lord, we want to have ears to hear what you have to say. To avoid the danger of sinful, hard hearts. Oh Lord, help us hear you. Help us obey you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.